Well, good morning, everyone. How are y'all doing today? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. As Anna said, if this is your first time, thank you so much for being with Hope Brooklyn. Um, our tagline is wherever you are in the spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Um, if you're here for the first time, we are in a series called Questions. And the basic premise behind this series is we wanted to know what interested you, what you're passionate about, what you don't understand. Um, and the most asked questions that were texted in, we assembled, we compiled, and we're going to preach a sermon on them. And I think it's a really uh, great place to start. So for those who don't know, we officially launched as a church about a month ago. And so this is our first, quote unquote, official series as a church plant or as a new church. And I think what's so special about that is we're kind of setting the tone with this series. We are not afraid of asking tough questions. We're not afraid of going there. We're not afraid of getting our hands dirty and disagreeing um, and responding in love. And so as we sort of jump into today's message, we have uh, three pillars that guide us as a church, and they're gonna be super impactful and, and imperative for, for this series. One, we are crowds and disciples. That's our way of saying what we said earlier. No matter where you are, there's room here. You don't have to be a Christian to be a part of Hope Brooklyn. But where you are on the spectrum of your response, of, of what you think, what you feel about Jesus' story, will determine how you hear the message. So know where you are. Secondly, we are a community of the story. Christianity for us is less a set of propositions that we feel like we need to ascribe to or check off a list, and it's more a story that we orient our lives around. Or even further, it's a story about the author that we turn our faces toward, and we find that we don't really understand what we're looking at at first, but the more we look toward the story, the more we look to the author, the more we start reflecting and embodying that radiance. And lastly, we eat together face to face. We usually get cheers when we say that one. Can we get some cheers? Yeah. We always eat together. When I, uh, when I look at the ministry of Jesus, he was constantly at meals. And so for us, uh, Jesus said before he left his disciples, he goes, hey, the world's gonna know you not by your theology, the world's gonna know you by your love because we're gonna practice a form of love that the rest of the world doesn't practice among themselves. We are gonna be a love that is willing to sacrifice and die for one another. Um, and so we finish service and we might disagree on certain things, but we end up at that table together. We end up sharing a meal together because that's how the world's gonna know us is by our love. Awesome. Before we jump into today's question, will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for every person here. You know them each by name. You know their stories. You know what makes them terrified. You know what makes them furious. You know their triggers. You know what makes them come alive, and be filled with joy. You know each one. Despite if they know you, you know them. And so Lord, I pray as we, uh, as we ask a really tough question today, a question that we're not gonna get a full answer for, on this, time, on this side of meeting you. I pray you speak to your people. You encourage their hearts and lead them into your presence because it is true. Our God is present everywhere. So give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. It's in your resurrected name we pray, amen. All right, so today's question is less of a simple, simple, simple question, question. So it goes like this. If God were all powerful, he could stop suffering, right? That makes sense. If God were all powerful, he could stop suffering. If he were all loving, he would stop suffering. The fact that unjust suffering and pain, deep pain exists in this world means that either God is not all powerful or he's not all loving, or both. And thus, since the Christians say that our God is both all powerful and all loving, the Christian God can't exist. We got lots of, this was the most asked question that we got, some form of this. How do you explain evil? How do you explain uh, suffering in the world? Um, 
What do you do about this? Does, does evil come from God? Do, does God allow bad things to happen to good people? All these types of questions are embodied in this argument. If God were all powerful and all loving, suffering to the scale that we see it would not exist. Sandy Hook, what do we do about that? Where was God at Sandy Hook? Children dying of cancer, totally innocent. Where's God? What's happening? Shootings. Shootings of innocent people, where's God? Tsunamis that wipe out a quarter of a million people on one, on one day, where's God, right? These are the questions that we even begin to approach our souls just burden with pain and confusion. Now interesting, when you talk to people who aren't Christians or people who leave the faith, generally it's because of this reason. Generally because they can't reconcile a good and loving God with such unjust suffering. Now that's interesting because if you were to pursue that logic, you'd realize that that's the one thing you can't do when you come face to face with this suffering. I'm gonna go through a long quote from C.S. Lewis from a time when he was an atheist before he became a, well, he's writing as a Christian, but he's writing about when he was an atheist. And this is what he says, and I'm gonna break it down as we go through. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how would I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? What's he saying right there so far? He's saying, if there is no God, try to put yourself in this thought experiment, there is no creator. You and I, we are simply the random chance. We have evolved by chance. It is totally indifferent, and it's premised on the idea of the strong defeating the weak, right? That's how we got here. There is, there's no creator. Why, when we see the strong defeating the weak, do we react with such violent revulsion? Why do we call it unjust? Categories of justice and injustice are moral categories. And unless we have a creator who says, yes, they find their purpose in me, they find their beginning in me, we'd really only say, well, this is just what I prefer. And that's what he does say. He says, a man feels wet when he falls into water <laughs> because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. And this is the key line, focus on this. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there was no light in the universe and therefore no creatures could ever evolve with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. Does that make sense? If there was no God, then humans would have evolved. We never would have evolved to a place where we said, there's injustice. This is senseless. Just like if there was no light in a universe, creatures never would have evolved to have eyes. Dark and light would have made no sense to them. So in the act of trying to disprove God by saying there's too much unjust suffering, he found that he had actually proven God. See, we live in a world steeped in violence. Look at the animal kingdom. The animal kingdom, look at nature. It's predicated on the idea of the strong defeating the weak. And yet when humans treat each other with that same level of brutality, we protest. Why? On what grounds do we base that? See, I would contend, as C.S. Lewis contends, that unjust pain unjust suffering and our resistance to it, our calling that wrong, is proof that justice is real. 
when Lewis says, a man who falls in water feels wet because man is not a water animal. Humans are supposed to live by justice. Justice is real. Therefore, when we see a world existing if injustice, we react. We notice it. It's not right. And if you're, so if your reasoning for saying that there is no God is, look at all the pain and suffering in the world. You're actually not following your own logic to the very end. If there were no God, suffering would not be a category we'd feel so strongly about. That's the first point. Now here's the second point. If you look at the predominant of human history, most people in history came to attribute, as they developed religions, came to attribute this universe to a good God, a good creator. Now that's something else, as Lewis points out. He goes, if the universe is so bad, or even half so bad, how on earth did human beings ever come to attribute it to the activity of a wise and good creator? Men are fools, perhaps, but hardly so foolish as that. The direct inference from evil flower to virtuous root, from senseless work to a workman infinitely wise, staggers belief. If there is no God, and thus we live in this universe, this decayed, unjust, brutal, violent universe, and there is no God, how in the world did we start developing this idea that this ugly flower actually came from a really beautiful source, a beautiful stem? How would we have, I mean, maybe we would have attributed it to an angry source, a really ugly stem, right? And some, some people have. But the predominant of human history actually attribute this really diseased flower to a beautiful source. Where did that come from? So in a sense, unjust pain and suffering, evil, and our inability to accept it as normal, because when we see it, we can't accept it as normal, is actually, in a strange twist, proof that the cosmos does come from a good God, from a good and loving God. When you watch that, the video of the innocent Syrian civilians lying on the ground suffocating and convulsing and foaming, and you feel utterly nauseous, where does that come from? Why would we feel so strongly about that unless there was a God who said, you should feel so strongly about that because I feel so strongly about that. But if it is as the Christians say, that there was a good creator, a good source, a good stem who produced a good flower, but the flower became infected, the flower became corrupted, and now the good creator is working to redeem that flower, to heal that flower, well then that makes a lot more sense of our environment and ourselves. It makes a lot more sense to why we respond the way we respond to certain things. So thus we have two options if we follow our logic. We have two options. We either yield to God's methods of healing the world, which we might not understand. We might think, where are you? But we yield to he must know what he's doing or we reject him entirely. Those are the two fair options when considering this problem. There's a, there was a viral video about Stephen Fry, who, if you don't know him, he's a British actor and a very outspoken atheist. And he was asked, um, he was asked, all right, let's say, Stephen, you get to the pearly gates and you're wrong. There is a God. What are you gonna say to him? And paraphrase, he basically said this. He goes, bone cancer in children? How dare you? How dare you? Insects that do nothing more than burrow into flesh? How dare you create a world that is so full of injustice and pain and so much of it is not our fault? It's not right. It's not right. I wouldn't want to get in anyway, not on these terms. That's a fair response, just FYI. You can have that response or you can accept his conditions, God's conditions. What we can't do when we consider unjust pain and suffering is write off the idea that there is no God. And what you find when you look at the Judeo-Christian story is that it doesn't tell us the reason for each experience of pain, but it does provide a story full of resources, 
for facing suffering with hope and courage. So let's dive into what perhaps the Judeo-Christian story might have to say to us today. Returning to the question, if God were all powerful, he could stop suffering. If he were all loving, he would stop suffering. Since evil and suffering persist, he either is not all powerful or not all loving or both. Now I think for our purposes, what we need to do is define those terms, all powerful and all loving. All powerful, we also have another word, omnipotence, right? We've heard that word, omnipotence. The idea that God should be able to do anything God wishes, right? Makes sense. He's all powerful. He can do whatever he wants. Now what's hidden in that language of possible or impossible is the the sort of this clause unless or the idea of conditions. Example, it is impossible for me to see the cafeteria, right? From where I'm sitting, it is impossible for me to see the cafeteria unless I go upstairs. Make sense? Unless I change the conditions, this is impossible. Now, the Christian story tells of a good God, a good God, a good stem who, who created the heavens and the earth. He created alternate planes, And he created creatures in the heavenly realm and he created creatures in the earthly realm. And some of these creatures, he gave the capacity to make free decisions. That is to say, he gave them the capacity to affect real change in his flower, in his cosmos. Some of the heavenly creatures, whether in one moment or over a period of time, they chose to cut themselves off from the source. They cut the flower off from the stem. But what do you do? It's, it's basic biology. When the, when the flower no longer is connected to the stem, it's slowly gonna shrivel and die. Hence the beginning of evil. And according to this story, the heavenly creatures beguiled the earthly creatures, tricked us into doing the exact same thing. And whether in one decision over a period or over a period of time, we too attempted to define our life, to define our existence on our own terms. That is to say, we cut ourselves off from the life source. And God, he had a choice to make. What's he gonna do? He gave us free will. Does he violate it? To change the conditions of the cosmos he created? Or does he accept it and figure out another way? Does he wipe it all out and hit the reset button? We know in the story of Noah that God decided not to do that that he wiped out a portion of the earth and he saved one family and he said, I will never do that again. And so the earth itself was given over. In a sense, what God did is he pulled himself back from the earth and he handed the earth over to the fallen heavenly creatures. I know it sounds a little primeval and mythological, but it is the story. And I think if you look at the predominance of human history and even in modern times, outside of our, our Western sensibilities, you'll find that people are open to a spiritual world. And we've seen things. So hence the earth itself is given over to this rebellion and the long list of famines, corruptions, natural disasters, tragic evil committed against one another and against nations. Thus God had a decision, like I said. But it was impossible for God to eradicate evil and subsequent pain and suffering from a world of free creatures unless he drastically changes the conditions. That is to say, unless he takes away free will. I can't see any other way. Maybe you can. Either creatures genuinely have the capacity to affect real change or they don't. Either they can make things happen in their environments, real things, or they're puppets. It's one or the other. These are the conditions. Now, just because, as it's pointed out by many Christian scholars, just because you and I can't see why God would make such a risky decision and giving us the ability to to choose doesn't mean he doesn't see it. When there's a possibility of freedom going awry. So then if he won't change the conditions, if we still have free will, what does he do when we choose what he wouldn't choose, right? He doesn't want us to lie to one another. We lie to one another all the time. What does he do about that? He doesn't want us to to commit violence against one another. We do. What does he do about that? 
The short of it is the word redemption. He weaves it into his story and our story. Paul writes in Romans 18, in his letter to Romans, he says this, he goes, that's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're feeling the birth pangs. Those sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That's why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the longer we become, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside, helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and the intended shape of our lives there in him. And after God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. What's Paul saying? He's saying God intended to write a story full of straight lines, but he gave us free will. And now we write really crooked lines. What does he do? He doesn't abandon our crooked lines. In fact, he enters them and he weaves our crooked lines back into his story of straight ones. That's what redemption is. Redemption is he enters the pain, he enters the suffering if we will allow it and he'll weave it into our stories such that it still gives him the glory. So I usually use this example when I talk about redemption. So many of y'all know I was born with Golden Heart Syndrome. I was born, the way the doctors explained it to my mom, is when she was 15 to 40 days pregnant, before she even knew it, a blood vessel popped in my brain. And consequently, I was born with a bunch of random physical abnormalities. I have scoliosis in my back, my heart had two holes in it, the bottom part of my right lung doesn't work, I was missing my left ear, my left jaw wasn't complete, a bunch of other random stuff. What do I say to that? If you were to ask me, do you think God intended in the beginning of time for babies to be born with broken bodies? My answer is no. That was not the intention. That was the result of the fall. That was the result of the flower being separated from the life source. For, and everyone's complicit in this in some way. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't help to point fingers or blame. And consequently, the entire genetic DNA of the cosmos is broken, such that we have tsunamis on one day and babies born broken on the next. That's a result of the fall. That was not God's intention. But what does God plan to do about it? The mystery of redemption is that he took these scars and he entered them. He taught me compassion by living a lot of life in hospitals. He taught me empathy for others and especially the outsider, which is very much who he is. God is attempting to use every detail of our lives to draw us closer into him, to form us into his image if we will allow him, such that if you were to ask me today, Russell, if you could go back and be born with a complete body, would you say yes? I'm not so sure I would. Because God has so worked in my life through these scars that I can't imagine how I would have been more beautiful if I had been born without him. 
Do you see how that works? That is not to say that this was his plan, but it is to say that the mystery of God is that he weaves the brokenness into our lives such that he makes something so beautiful from it, we can't imagine how the original would have been more beautiful. Does that make sense? If you will let him. God's saying, I'm not, I'm not abandoning you. I'm not repulsed by your wounds. I'm not repulsed by the brokenness. I actually accepted this. I created knowing this was gonna be the case and I'm entering into it and I'm creating from your crooked line something so straight if you'll let me. And it's gonna be even more beautiful than we, theoretically when we think back of what it would have been. His omnipotence, his power is demonstrated in how resourceful and creative he is to deal with the deep pain of the world. Now you might be sitting here thinking, okay, maybe that works for your scars, but you don't know my pain. And that's true, I don't. I don't know. I would say two things. One, are you letting him near? Are you letting him near it? Or are you saying, no, 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 this is mine. I'm holding on to it. And two, God's writing a story. And as the author, as we sort of know, the author kind of knows all pages. He knows where the story's headed. The characters in the story don't know every page. They know one at a time. So we speak and we act and we pray from our page in the story while God knows where it's headed. Now that might not give you too much encouragement, but then the third thing would be this. This is why he gave us the church. We carry each other's burdens. We absorb each other's pains. That's our job. So that's omnipotence. Now what do we mean when we say all loving? What is that idea of how God is all loving? I think this is, we are very much confused when we talk about love in modern society. I think when we talk about love, we really don't mean love. We sort of mean kindness or happiness. Or as C.S. Lewis says, we don't want a father in heaven. We want a grandfather in heaven, right? What would really satisfy us, he says, would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? That was my grandfather God voice. We want a senile, benevolent old man who likes to see the young people enjoying themselves. But you notice when you think through that, when you think that's not love, that's, that's kindness. There's a distance there, right? I want people I don't really know to be happy. I want people I love to be formed into the image of God. Kindness almost creates an indifference toward the object of the kindness. But God is love, right? I want people I don't know to be happy. But if I love you and you're working long hours killing yourself and you're like, I'm happy, I'm gonna say, I don't care. This is not what life's for. If you're doing drugs and you're saying, I'm happy, I'm gonna say, I don't care. I love you. I love you too much to say, I just want you to be happy, even if happiness is killing yourself. And we kill ourselves in so many different ways. So many different ways. God is love. And what he's creating among us is this idea that whatever happens to you affects me. In Ephesians 4, Paul says to the church, speak truth to one another. Why? Because we are members of one another. This is one of the most grossly misunderstood verses. Because in our day and age, truth is information. So we have this idea of like, I'm about to speak truth to you, which means I'm gonna tell you like it is, and I'm gonna exit. That's not Paul's understanding of truth. That's not the gospel. The gospel is I need to speak truth to you because you and I were joined at the hip. And if you don't get it, I don't get it. And if I don't get it, you don't get it. My love for you compels me to speak truth to you. Because if you die, I die. That's the church. That's what he's creating. Love. I remember my, my brother was in a dark place one time, just a dark place. And I was praying with him over the phone and every fiber of my being wanted to pray that God removed him from this dark place, but I couldn't. I, I was sitting there and I was just trembling because I love him so deeply. And I wanted to pray and I could feel how much pain he was in. I said, God, remove him from this. But I couldn't. Because I don't want him to be removed from it until he's learned what he needs to learn from it. And I don't know what that is. And I don't know what that means. I do know this, that I will be with him in it. I'm not going anywhere. 
And that's the answer of the church. I love this quote from Stanley Hauerwas, and he says, a social order bent on producing wealth as an end in itself cannot avoid the creation of a people whose souls are superficial and whose daily life is captured by sentimentalities. They will ask questions like, why does a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? Such people cannot imagine that a people once existed who produced and sang the Psalms. What's he saying? He's saying from our birth in this country, we were told that life is about pursuing happiness at whatever means, whatever cost. But if you look around the rest of the world, specifically if you look at the people, the Jewish people who produced and sang the Psalms, they knew that life is not about pursuing happiness. Life is about worshiping God. Life is about following Torah and obeying and and being formed into his image. We only say that life is about pursuing happiness because we're not worried about our city, the neighboring city being bombed. You live in certain countries in the world, you're you're very quickly, uh, that idea is removed from your mind is life about pursuing happiness. Life has to be about something far deeper than pursuing happiness. Hauerwas is saying because we live in a world, we live in a society that just produces wealth as an end in itself, our souls are superficial. And so we ask questions like that because we don't understand that God created us for more than just to pursue happiness. He created us to love us, to love us so hard that he forms us into his image. The Jewish people don't ask, why do bad things happen to good people? They know. They know why. They know what this world is for. And see, and usually what happens with us is crisis events sort of force the reality back into us. The death of a loved one, when that happens, doesn't sort of this intoxication of our, of our numbness because of all the things we have, doesn't it just sort of cut right through it? And you're forced to ask deep questions of what's life really about because it's not about pursuing happiness. Why am I here? Deep suffering cuts through sort of our frivolous lives and asks us to consider what's real. And for the Christians, our answer should be, life is not about pursuing happiness. We know what's wrong with the world. It's called sin. It's called sin. And I know if you're not a Christian, you'd be like, oh, that's an ugly word. And it's been misappropriated and misused. But the basic idea behind sin is what we said earlier. A good source, a good God created a good flower. The good flower cut itself off from the source. And now the flower is corrupting and withering. The flower is not coming alive. And so all the various manifestations of that are terrible decisions, our terrible actions, our fear. All the various idolatries in our world are a result that we are not filled with God, we're filled with something else. And one of the unfortunate consequences of our modern society is that we've lost the perception of our broken natures. And crisis generally injects it, it brings us face to face with it. So the other day, um, Anna and I were doing a wedding and we were trying to go to Jersey and it was a hot day and we had lots of gear and I was like carrying two things up and down subway steps. So already the agitation was, was boiling. Um, notice I'm qualifying this because when you get to sort of the the main point, you're gonna judge me, which I deserve, I deserve it, guys. But basically, it it culminates, we go on the path and we went on the wrong side of the train. So I'm like, oh. So we go back down across the street, go through the path. We start to hear the train coming, but my card has no money on it. So I'm putting my card in the machine and I'm trying to get money. It's not reading my credit card. I'm like punching as fast as I can, put money on the card, it's not reading the train's getting louder and louder as it's approaching. Finally, all right, screw that. I put in my, so a $5 bill to try to get any money on it. As the train is like slowing down in the station, I'm freaking out. It holds for a second like a sitcom and then the $5 comes back out. <laughs> and friends, I screamed something out in the subway station that you would be shocked to hear that I screamed. Granted, there was no one else there in the room. I made sure, all right, I was aware of my surroundings. But what was that inside of me? Like what, what compelled me to say such words? And then to like add insult to injury, I hear Anna's voice behind me going, are you okay? I was like, babe, why don't you catch the train? 
It was on the other side of the tracks. I was like, uh. We walk upstairs and everyone's just sort of staring at me out of the corner of their eye. I'm just like, oh my goodness. C.S. Lewis says, if there are rats in your cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It prevents them from hiding. Crisis, moments like I just experienced, it doesn't create what's inside of me, that brokenness inside of me that would respond with such rage. It just reveals it. See, that's the issue. In our modern society, we are so consumed with things that we don't have a chance to see how broken the world really is. That's why I said earlier, if you ask Syrians what's wrong with the world, they can tell you. The world's broken. The world is broken. They have to have a different story, a deeper story that accounts for their lives than just the pursuit of happiness. But God is not after our happiness. He loves us too much. He wants to transform us into his image. And therefore, the Christian story makes a lot more sense when you come face to face with the deep pain of the life, the deep pain of tragedy and the brokenness, not only outside of you, but also inside of you. I love this quote. He says, uh, this is Lewis talking. He says, over a sketch, talking about an artist, over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it is not exactly as he meant it. But over the great picture of his life, over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves as a man loves a woman or a mother her child, he will take endless trouble and therefore will give endless trouble to the picture if it were conscious. One can imagine a conscious picture after being rubbed and scraped and rebegun for the 10th time, wishing it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute because it hurt so badly. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are not wishing for more love, but for less. What's he saying? He's saying you wanted a loving God, you got one. You actually don't want a loving God. You want a grandfather who would just be like, they're there as long as you're enjoying yourself. But a loving God will go to any means necessary to conform you to his image, to chisel you like a sculpture, to rebegin you like a painting because the artist will, will not be content with his masterpiece until it's perfect. No doubt, pain is God's megaphone and it's a terrible instrument. It rouses us to the reality of the world. And it may lead, as it did with Stephen Fry, or perhaps for right now, it may lead to the final and unrepented rebellion. It may lead to someone saying, fine, if this is your methods, God, if you're gonna use such terrible pain, the pain in my life, and let it go, because you're saying somehow it forms me into your image, somehow it's love, fine, if that's what love is, I'm out. And you can say that. It may lead to that. But it also gives the only opportunity we have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. And the truth is this, something's not right with the world. Something's not right with each one of us. We have a rebellion inside each one of us that goes down to the very core of our beings. And God is after nothing less than to make you his child again. And he will use the pain of your life if that's what it takes, and it probably will, to love you. And he'll be right there with you every step of the way. Sometimes you'll feel him, sometimes you won't, but he's there if you will allow him to weave it into your story and therefore his story. All right, so he's all powerful, but he refuses to violate the conditions of the world he created. He refuses to take away free will and he weaves it into his big story. He's all loving, he's not indifferent, and therefore he won't give us happiness as we think best but he tends, intends to use pain and suffering as instruments of love to transform us. That still doesn't change the fact that this, if this is all true, then Fry is right. How dare you, God? How dare you look on 
while Syria bombs its people and children foam at the mouth and you do nothing. How dare you look on while Sandy Hook happens? How dare you? How dare you look on while your own people are exterminated in the Holocaust? How dare you, God? Or you know what? Let's go a step further. This isn't theoretical. It's deeply personal. What about my pain? What about my son or daughter? Where are you, God? What about my loneliness? And you're not here. You said you would be and you're not. What about the pain in my life that has absolutely no answer? How dare you? But the Judeo-Christian story does have an answer. God does have an answer for that pain which you think he just sits idly back and doesn't experience himself. I want to read a passage. And as I do, I invite you to close your eyes. It comes from the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah is writing around 800 BC. And he's speaking the words of God. And 800 BC, just for those of you who know, is about 800 years before Jesus walked the earth. And this is what the prophet Isaiah says. Just watch my servant blossom. Exalted, tall, head and shoulders above the crowd. But he didn't begin that way. At first, everyone was appalled. He didn't even look human. A ruined face, disfigured past recognition. Nations all over the world will be in awe. They'll be taken aback. Kings will be shocked into silence when they see him. For what was unheard of, they'll see with their own eyes. What was unthinkable, they'll have right before them. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, though he was scum, thought he was scum, but the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things that, that are wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. And God has piled all of our sins, everything we've done wrong, he's piled it on him, on him. He was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice is miscarried, and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked. They threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along to crush him with pain. The plan was that he'd give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones as he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and he didn't flinch. 
because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his own shoulders the sin of the many and he took up the cause of the lost sheep. You can open your eyes. Isaiah wrote this word, these words saying, God saying through him, there's gonna come a servant. There's gonna come one who I'm gonna call and this servant is gonna come and he's gonna take upon himself, though he did nothing wrong, he's gonna take upon himself the brokenness of the world. The flower cut itself off from the stem, but the stem's coming. The stem's gonna send a servant to enter, to totally enter the flower and take absorb all the pain, all the bile, all the suffering, all the evil in himself. Isaiah is writing these words 800 years before Jesus. And I wonder if he knew the full power of what he was writing. Because God's plan, for those of us who are Christians here, God's plan is that God was not just gonna send someone to come save the world. He was gonna come himself. He was gonna come himself. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God and three beautiful persons from eternity, constantly knowing one another, delighting in one another, adoring one another. And the Son, the Son says, Father, I'll go and I will be that one who takes upon himself your brokenness, my brokenness, the deepest brokenness of the world that has no answer. The mystery of the gospel is that God would separate himself of God for love, for you. So when you peel back this question of how could an all-powerful, all-loving God allow such pain and suffering, you realize that he created the world already foreseeing the cross, already knowing that the plan in creating creatures with the capacity to choose, we would choose poorly. He created already knowing that the ultimate cost of his creation, if he really wanted you and me, was gonna be the separation, the split in the very Godhead. The son would have to carry all the pain because only the son could. Only the creator could carry all the pain and suffering and evil of the world. This was the price to pay and it was his price and he deemed you worth it. See, God basically had two choices before he created. Choice was you with a lot of pain and most of the pain being his to carry or no you at all. And he chose you. He still chooses you. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I confess we don't understand the mystery of your gospel. That you would create a world of free creatures knowing that we would go astray. Of heavenly creatures knowing that some would go astray. And rather than destroy and hit the reset button, rather than violate our capacity to choose that you would work through our choices, even the choices that you wouldn't make for us. Even the deep tragedies of this world, you would work through it and you'd weave it into your story. And you called one people, one nation out of all the nations and you set them apart as your own. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, you set Israel apart as yours and you worked through them and you taught them what it means to be made in the image of the one God. And from Israel, you called forth one Israelite who just so happened to be yourself, fully God and fully human, Jesus of Nazareth. And like the suffering serpent, as Isaiah prophesied 800 years before Jesus walked, you yourself took on the pain and the sins of the world. You took on all the brokenness. You sucked up all the evil into your own nature and the living God the one who was life was subjected to death to join us in the ultimate pain and suffering for the sake of love.
God, you separated yourself from your son. Though y'all, you had known one another from all eternity, you separated yourself from your son for the sake of us. And now you're asking only that we witness to who you are, to your story, that we love others more than our own lives, that we would go and, and be willing to die for others' pain as you died for ours. Lord, I don't know the pain in this room. I know there's great pain, but I don't know every story. I know people are asking, where are you, God? Jesus, where are you? I love this family. And so I pray you do speak. You do lift your hand when it's time. That you do redeem even the chapters in people's lives that they can't imagine how, would you, how you would begin to make something perfect or beautiful from it. They can't imagine. But that's who you are. We can't look at you and say that you don't know our pain. No, we don't know yours. We don't know your pain. But your love is deep and it's exacting and it's powerful and it will bring the flower back to life. It will bring all of us into the likeness of your son if we will allow it. So I pray for every person here, no matter where they are on their journey with you, Jesus, that they would, whether they're beginning and they just wanna say, all right, Jesus, I wanna know what it's like to follow you. I wanna learn more of your story. Or if they've been following you for a while, and they've tasted the sweetness of your gospel, of your good news. Give us courage to resist temptation, to keep pursuing you, Lord. I just pray that every person here would know that you do love them more than they recognize, actually, and that you are with them. And for the time being, that you gave them the church. You gave them one another to carry each other's burdens. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Hear our prayers and speak to us. That's in your crucified and resurrected name we pray. Amen.